0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Previously on Cascading Leadership.
1: So my name is Mitch Stein, obviously. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Pond. It's an ecosystem built for nonprofits to thrive. We have a, what I like to call a network marketplace. We bring together a community of nonprofit leaders and the vendors that provide the tools and services that power their mission and find creative ways to connect them when they need them, help inform them what they need, what could work, what others are using to make the best decisions, and ultimately save a lot of money on the things they're investing in. So, really disrupting and changing that cycle of investment in long term investment in nonprofit organizations. My family's all long term from Indiana. For whatever reason, when I was a kid, I had these two somewhat unique qualities. Where I was like really aggressive about helping other people to the point that maybe pushed people the wrong way. I was like hosting Krispy Kreme fundraisers at my middle school in the sixth grade and like making all my friends and their parents buy donuts, put on a brand new school carnival to help the tsunami victims. My mom had a friend who passed away from leukemia really suddenly. And I made these custom bandanas for her and we sold them and were able to donate a thousand, like one of those big checks, like on the news. That was me in the seventh grade. So I I was always really passionate about helping others and it fit well into my broader ethos of like always doing the most. I I covered tech companies. I worked with software and internet businesses but I was not like a product manager at Facebook or something where you have a lot more transferable skills to building a new tech product. But when I was doing my exit interview from Lloyd's team and moving on to the tech banking team, he asked me what my biggest takeaway was from the experience. And I looked at him and said, the biggest thing is that I now know I could do your job. And he kind of laughed at me, but like nodded and got it because I didn't mean, it wasn't an arrogant thing to say, move over, I'm stepping in. It was to say, you can't be what you can't see. And it seems unattainable, these leaders that any one of us might look up to when they're just hitting the high notes on an interview on TV or having all these amazing write-ups because everyone wants to hear amazing stories about people. So they just look like incredible, perfect. What do you do? And the reality is when you see them behind the scenes, they work hard and they're smart and they were committed to something. And I knew that I could do all those things, too. It might not be at this company, but someday I could also be a leader like you.
0: And now part two of our interview of Mitch Stein, the CEO of Pond. Here we learn about problem obsession. Why the focus on the NPO space and the impact economy?
1: And I think the next step in that process were two things. One, the organization I worked with was going through a transition between tech platforms. I was really frustrated with the fundraising tool they were using. I just felt like it was a clunky experience that charged a lot. I didn't love that experience for the donors I was fundraising from. And so I was really frustrated. And then after I heard about, oh, when we go to find something new, we don't really know what to use. And it still has this Expense and there's nowhere to find more information. And just hearing more about how convoluted this process was, I was like, this sucks. Like, why does it have to be this way? There's so many nonprofits out there. Like, why don't they have better ubiquitous resources to tap into for these tools and services that ultimately drive a tremendous amount of impact? When you think about the millions of dollars they raised with those tools, how much better could it be if the tools were better? And so I started obsessing with this and talking to other nonprofits, and I kept hearing this consistent storyline of, yeah, our tech sucks. 10 years behind. I've always felt that way. And the options are bad and it's hard to even find out about them. And I was just like, why? Wow. Like, why does this exist? And then the other thing I'd hear from people was, yeah, yeah, but they're at a nonprofit. Like, that's just, it's, they're behind because it's a nonprofit and the people that work in nonprofits, right? Oh, and that just infuriated me (laughs) to no end to be like, no, I've seen this up close and personal. And the people I know from the center, are some of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. And for you to put them down because they have a career in social work and policy and advocacy instead of finance, that's how we're making prioritizations and determining success in our society? I don't think so. And that's just what I became obsessed with that problem. And I felt like my experience, I covered a lot of marketplace businesses and going through learning more about the sector, I worked on an actual product pitch internally at Goldman, where I was saying they could build a nonprofit banking platform. And they ultimately turned me down. And the reason was because they thought the, there wasn't a good enough go to market. There wasn't a distribution channel to reach this sector, this segment. And I was like, okay, all of this kind of came together to say, I'm getting all these signs that there's no connectivity. There's no infrastructure layer in the sector to help people connect with and justify investing in the best technology and services to run their organizations. And so it's fragmented, they're remaining separated, they're not getting the funding, and it's all rooted in this core problem with a lack of infrastructure. And if there was a marketplace that brought everyone to the same table, empowered the nonprofit leaders, and treated them like the industry they are, by the way, Which is over 10 million people employed in the United States by the nonprofit sector, spends billions of dollars a year. And by our calculations, over 370 billion of that is on tech, professional services, training, things that could be acquired through a marketplace, improved with costs reduced, and make normalize those investments in a space where funders and donors discourage investing in long-term things like technology infrastructure training pay because they want the money to go to the cause how are you meeting the cause without a growing sustainable organization that runs in a fashion that competes from an hiring perspective with for-profit companies because if you care more about the message that all the money went to the cause then you don't care about solving the cause you don't care about solving the problem And so I think that message of being obsessed with the problem was true for me as a startup founder, but it's also true for anyone who wants to support a nonprofit. Be obsessed with the problem. Don't get hung up on, I don't know, the ED driving, they're driving a pretty nice car. How much are they getting paid again at that nonprofit? You would never say that about the person running a small business chain of car washes. You'd be like, oh, good for them. Wow. Wow they've really grown. The business is doing so well. Look at their new car. Dude, like, Just think about the differences there. It's wild.
0: One of the things that I'm chewing over as you're talking about the problem of obsession is why did you choose to make the obsession about the problem versus obsession about the solution? Because that has broader implications too. I want to understand why you made that focus on the problem versus focus on the solution?
1: I'd say, it for, to be totally honest, Jim, like it wasn't intentional at first. And I think I've gotten better at it over time. Because when I veer away from that, which has happened, that's when I get burned. Where our very first product launch, I was like, okay, great. I have this great idea. of uh, I finally, I found the problem and I have a solution. I'm going to leave my job. Side note, it was five days before the pandemic hit. I ended up moving in with my parents, living in my childhood bedroom for two years, a lot of unexpected things that happened. But I get started and I'm like, okay, I'm sitting here virtually, remotely. No one's having any in-person meetings. And I need to start getting feedback from people on what they think about my marketplace concept. I'm going to build, it looked like Yelp for all these tools and services nonprofits use. We're going to gather reviews. We're going to compare all their features. So it's really easy for you to shop. And so I would bring this to people, explain what I was doing. And be like, what do you think? And everyone, what do you think they'd say? Oh, yeah, that sounds great. There's a really great book called The Mom Test. And the whole point is, you can't go to your mom and be like, hey, mom, what do you think about my startup idea? Because what is she going to say? Oh, yeah, that sounds great, honey. Instead, you want to go ask questions to understand her experience with the problem you're solving. And so I just learned that the hard way. Our first product was a complete flop. Like, no one would go to use it. We spent months trying. And I, like, was literally hours away from closing up shop. So I just think I've learned it the hard way and gotten better at it because I thought the reason to leave my job was identifying a solution. And I don't think that's the right time. You actually, it's, you need to be at problem obsession because what you really need to do when you're starting off full-time focus or if it's part-time and you do it nights and weekends, whatever, you need to be so obsessed with the problem that you're not getting too obsessed with solutions. And you can put yourself on like a regimented cycle of testing to say, okay, here's an idea for the next month. I'm going to build it, test it this way. I'm going And if I don't hit these KPIs by the end, I'm scrapping it, I'm moving on to another idea. You have like that level of almost like dispassionate connection to your actual product as opposed to your obsession with the problem.
0: That is a great breakdown because it has so many broad implications. And LB and I are a couple of sales guys. So we look at it from the perspective of we've led teams and you often see it with even senior level reps where you firmly believe that your product is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And when you go meet a customer, you think the meeting went great. And you spent 90% of the time talking about all the bells and whistles that you have instead of really understanding what is the battle that your customer is trying to fight? What is the dragon that they're trying to slay? And that's the difference between solution obsession versus problem obsession. And there's all of this stuff that that we talk about on a regular basis in terms of buyer centricity, in terms of understanding the buyer journey and all of that sort of stuff. I see it just from my lens of being in the sales side where salespeople are easy or marketing people are easy enough to fall into a trap. Oh, I have no idea. The customer just doesn't get it. No, you just never ask the customer what their biggest problem is. What are they trying to solve? And if you do that and focus the energy there you're going to move a lot further. So it's a great call out. And when you frame it in terms of what's necessary for startup success, you just talk through it. You have to be ruthlessly committed to discarding an idea. If it doesn't work, Like pitch it and move on. It's fail, fail fast, fail often, fail forward. And that's the cadence that you need to be in for startup success. And actually focusing on the problem gets you to that uh,
1: the other thing i just i'd quickly flag is that yes obsession with problem helps you iterate but most startups fail and most founders fail and it's almost always because they stop there's some reason that they stopped they ran out of money they gave up something else came up but they stopped something they had to stop and i think from an investor's perspective, they're looking for signs that you might stop because it's going to be really freaking hard. And if you are just so obsessed with your solution, you're highly likely to stop. Because if you are completely obsessed with your problem you're addressing, then you're not going to stop at anything because you can't like sleep at night until that thing gets solved. And I think that level of commitment is hard to come by if you don't live and breathe the problem. And I was doing an interview for our podcast today, actually with someone who it's, she's a professor about social impact. And her point was all of this is hope. The currency in this space is hope because if you don't believe something can be solved or can be better, then why would you put any effort into doing anything about it? Your own, like that translate obsession with problem it sounds like
2: a negative thing. It's actually hope Mitch, you said a whole lot. I'm like all over the place in my head, thinking about a couple of things, because Jim knows this about me, like I read a lot. And so all of a sudden, like authors and books and phrases from, from books start to pop in my head. One of the things that I was thinking about was one, there is a book called building a story brand by Donald Miller. And we talked about that earlier on about the ability to be able to tell a story. And Jim just touched on the whole idea of it's really the the customer or what you're solving for that's really the center that's really the goal of that person individual or thing being the center and being the hero that you're trying to that you're trying to solve for so that was my statement about it, and there's probably 10 other things that are floating around up there you touched on a little bit about the the NPO landscape can you say more about like how you've made an impact one how you seek to make an impact and what you've seen from a NPO landscape perspective?
1: I'd say impact made so far, scratching the surface, not even like barely stepped our toe over the start line in terms of what all is out there to be done. But yeah, I think the nonprofit landscape, I talked to some of the stats earlier, which even that alone blows people's minds. In New York City, where I live, one in six people works for a nonprofit. And that doesn't include the government. One in six, it is such a huge component of our economy. It's about 5% of U.S. GDP is spending from the nonprofit sector. And when I talked about the impact economy, yes, there is a component of that that is literally all the money being given to service-based organizations and spent on solving and addressing solving causes, problems. But there's also a greater C that is the impact right? So when you think about how you measure and assess a non, a for-profit success is their profit, right? It's the number that we all care about. How much money are they making? That's what makes the world go around. Great. When we think about nonprofits, their most important KPI should be, it's not necessarily, it should be the impact. What is the impact metric that they're achieving? And today we assess nonprofits by headline things like, oh, they raise more money, right? Or Oh, they, own, they spent 10% on overhead. Awesome. Great. I'm so glad all this money went to the cause, which sometimes, sure, but that's such a, it's like the ratio on a standalone basis is absolutely meaningless. What does 10% of $100 mean? What does 30% of $10 million mean? I don't know. Like, it's an absolutely meaningless figure. And so many people are anchored on that as like good nonprofit, bad nonprofit. Spends on programs, spends on overhead, where there's so much more at stake. And I think the value that they're providing in the impact economy for thinking about impact as currency, you feel good being aligned to a nonprofit that is addressing the problem. And the better they address it, you almost as a donor, I think of donors as like shareholders, like you're giving into this thing in a way that you are like attached to outcomes of this thing. And I think corporates are totally that way, where They're giving, supporting, aligning their brand to a nonprofit organization or a cause. And they're accruing a ton of real benefit out of that, right? That's marketing benefit. That's bringing real customers on board. And it's all related to the impact being achieved. So I think the world is at a point in time where we are all grappling with the fact that profit, like most binary things is a really horrible measure to base our economy around exclusively. And it achieved a lot. People will point to, oh, think about all the people lifted out of poverty by the system we've created. But that does not mean that there isn't something way better we could be striving for when you think about all the people that still aren't. You still haven't addressed the core problem, and it's actually growing, and the wealth caps are growing. And I think the way out of that is actually transitioning the economy to stuff, valuing stuff that matters. I was just listening to Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, came to speak to our startup accelerator class, and he recently put a book out called Burn Rate. And he was covering up his own issues with bipolar disorder for the bulk of his life and had a full mental break. And so he wrote this entire book about mental health and how to embrace it and be open with it and engage with it and how important that is. And that's what he was talking to our class about. But someone was asking, like, how did you keep going? How did you connect with your team? And how did, you know, like asking how he got through all these things. And was it just the impact you were having? And he literally said to our class, we were selling pants. And that just hit me. Of I can't, how much effort I'm putting into this startup right now. If I sat back and thought, Oh yeah, I'm just selling pants. I don't, I would not be able to k- get up every day and continue doing what I'm doing. More importantly, motivate the people around me and just think the difference you could achieve, the amazing things achieved by high growth startups. What if that same energy could be applied for people solving real problems, not getting you a hundred friends on Facebook? There's just a, it, that as an economic force to me is so fascinating how we haven't all embraced that already and appreciated the value and exponential value in having impact versus all of these things we celebrate that are just like, okay, cool. So you've gotten kids addicted to their cell phones and pumped a bunch of advertising dollars into your pocket. That's, what's been achieved. Like, We celebrate that.
0: Why? Your definition of the impact economy and the focus of the impact economy got me immediately thinking about some of the ways that even charities are measured. So everybody's familiar with Charity Navigator. And one of their evaluations of how effective, air quotes, effective an NPO is based on how much of the funding or the donor, the donations go to supporting the cause versus infrastructure or overhead. And in the private sector, like you mentioned, it's all about outcomes. So that that focus on being like infrastructure poor and cause rich, it keeps you in this spot where you can never scale. It's really interesting, this difference of how things are measured. I never really actually thought about it that way, but it's it, it's an interesting double standard that we have. It goes back to what you said. Your podcast is the kids' table and it's all about NPOs. And I think, I think when we're talking pre production, you're like, oh, the reason why we called it the kids' table is because people have this perception of people who work within NPOs as less than somebody that started up some other type of business. So that's an interesting pivot. And I think you're dead. I think you're absolutely right. If the amount of energy, that was spent just selling pants was reallocated.
1: And capital, can we please call attention to the capital poured into failed venture-backed tech companies?
0: That's an important point too. So how did you pull that off? You're a tech startup serving not-for-profits and you're working on scaling your own business. So you have a lot of these things that are stacked against you because the broader investor community is automatically defaulting to you this will never work. How did you navigate all of those headwinds? It's hard enough to do a tech startup, but a tech startup that services not-for-profits, you said it earlier in the show, investors were like, there's no money in that. Why do we want to do that? Like, how did you navigate that?
1: Remember what I said earlier about driving with a chip on my shoulder? So I put a lot of stock in the fact that if everybody understood and believed in what I was doing, someone would probably already be doing it. If it were easy, someone else would probably be doing it. And I really feel like all those steps in my life and that accumulated privilege set me up in a position to really move the needle with what we're doing. And so I I feel like a real obligation to that. Now, it's not easy. It's required a lot of commiseration, therapy, (laughs) medication. (laughs) Like it's the mental health toll that you take in taking something on like this, I think is wildly underestimated by people. Because again, you only ever see the outcomes, the positive outcomes, the famous people, the stories. Yeah, you hear this romanticized, oh, they lived in a one bedroom and ate ramen. And oh, how funny that is. hindsight. It's a lot deeper than that. And there's been multiple moments that I can remember being like sitting on the kitchen floor in my parents' house and holding my dog and sobbing, crying, and my mom just being like, do you want to keep doing this to yourself? Like, why are you doing this to yourself?
0: Tune in next time for part three of our interview with Innovator and Disruptor. Mitch Stein, CEO of Pond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast, player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.